So welcome to the March episode of Discourse, where we take an RSP-style look at religion in the news. And our first guest this month is Vivian Asimas. Vivian, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, I'm Vivian. I'm currently working at Durham University as a teaching assistant. Uh, I got my PhD there at Durham University in virtual storytelling, where I studied horror stories online. Um pseudo-religion, I guess. <laughs> uh, I run the Religion and Popular Culture podcast, um, as well as working alongside the Theology, Religion and Popular Culture Network. Awesome. And our next guest is Dan Gorman. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I am a history PhD candidate at the University of Rochester in the United States studying spiritualism and in the 19th century and various scientists, journalists, and other sort of public investigators who were questioning its legitimacy or falsehood and then what the stakes of that were for American culture. Mm, that all sounds really interesting. Um, my name is Theo Wildcroft. I'm an early career scholar. Uh, I completed my PhD with the Open University uh, last year. And my thesis concerned the evolution of contemporary yoga culture, particularly some significant changes in the nature of authority and bureaucratic governance. Um, and I'm fascinated more generally by bodies, religion, identity and culture. So, you know, small things, uh, meaning making, little things like that. Um, and uh, I have a, a chapter in the forthcoming Routledge Handbook of Performance Philosophy and uh, my monograph manuscript is in progress at the moment. I help out with various bits and pieces, including the JBSR and other things. And mostly I uh, hang out with a lot of yoga teachers, um, which is mostly what I'm going to be doing this weekend. Um, so I think we can go straight into it. Uh, it's uh, an interesting day to be recording. It's the 12th of March. It might be useful to say that for later um, because the news is, a, in terms of the, the coronavirus and things, is a very interesting place. It's a very interesting thing that's happening at the moment, but we are not going to start with that. Uh, we're going to go straight to Dan with an interesting piece about the U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. So the story I'll be talking about today is from the Pew Research Center, which is a think tank based in Washington, uh -huh. D.C. They do a lot of large-scale opinion polls, um, not just about religion, but they're one of the few large think tanks that includes religion among the social trends that they monitor. Um, right. So they're trying to get a mix, I think, of quantitative and qualitative information about religion in this country. So anyway, the article by Dalia Fami with religion related rulings on the horizon, U.S. Christians see Supreme Court favorably from March 3rd, 2020. The, the basic thesis of the article is that when looking at American demographic groups and bringing religion into it, it tends to be that white evangelical Christians are the most likely to view the Supreme Court favorably, followed also by Catholics, although the survey doesn't specify the race of the Catholics. Um, there's some speculation that the positive beliefs are connected to the election or appointment of Neil Gorsuch and what's his name? Brett Kavanaugh, um, both of mm -hmm. whom are very conservative judges who are known to be pro-life. Uh, I don't know if they're Catholics, but they are some, you know, more conservative form of Christian. And so it, there's speculation on, from the Pew staff that, the appointment of two pro-life justices to the bench will make conservative Christians, particularly white conservative Christians, more fond of the court because they think they have the court on their side, which would be the ultimate goal of banning abortion in the United States. Some of, it's so fairly, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so, so that's an interesting thing then. So rather than seeing the Supreme Court as um, an objective entity, if we can, you know, with that problematic word objective, that what we're talking about here is almost a kind of a, an us and them situation that there's our side and their side. And if we have enough of our people in there, then, you know, this is, this is almost a, a kind of a, a crusading, yes. um, well, evangelical kind of mission. Um, I think it's 
I think it's interesting that you use the word crusade in particular. There is a major organization for evangelical Christians in colleges in the United States. It's called the Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that that speaks to that idea of we are fighting to preserve the values that we want to see in society. It is interesting, though, the Campus Crusade has renamed themselves as crew. I think that's an attempt to sound less objectionable, but their mission stays the same. Hmm. Less subjectionable, just more down with the kids. How are they spelling crew? It strikes C- me as one of those names. It's a bit a bit interesting. Yes, C-R-U. This has been for several <laughs> years now. <laughs> yeah, I th- I, I'm not sure I would consider that to be the cool kids on campus if I, when I was a student. I don't know. Um, well, but it depends on your audience, right? It depends. And I think that's what, the, does, Pew, yeah. I think that's what the Pew survey is trying to capture, the the perspectives that vary. Now, just share a couple other statistics that are, are worth mentioning. Um, so mm-hmm. we've established that most white evangelical Protestants want Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court case legalizing abortion, to be overturned. Um, six in 10 white evangelical Protestants support that overturning of it. But when you look at the other religious groups listed here, even though, for instance, American Catholics have the stereotype of being pro-life, um, actually, a, a significant majority, 68% of American Catholics, would like to see Roe v. Wade stay on the books. So that suggests a gap between um, priests who might be against abortion and then the people who show up to Mass every week. And of course, it's also notable that unaffiliated Christians, or excuse me, religiously unaffiliated mm. people in general very much want to see abortion stay legal. Mm hmm. There's an interesting disconnect there between what we might consider to be the orthodoxy of a particular religious group and what the kind of, if you like, for want of a better word, the congregations involved do want to support. There's a, I can't remember exactly where it's from now, but it's a fantastic statistic um, in a survey of religious attitudes in the UK from the 1980s, which found that uh, 20% of people who self-identified as Christians also believed in reincarnation, um, which yes. is, is really fascinating because if you reverse that statistic and you say 80% of Christians believe in reincarnation, is reincarnation then a Christian belief? Or, you know, what what, what has the primacy? What has the authority? Um, is it the, the kind of circle community leaders and priests and so on? Or is it the kind of congregations en masse? And what does that mean um, for us? I'm kind of interested. I, I'm aware, Vivian, that uh, obviously you're, you, you've moved to the right side of the Atlantic now um, <laughs> uh, with us. And, uh, but I'm aware that um, kind of like, um, how does it, into, specifically being a woman as well, growing up in these kinds of environments, how do these kinds of things feel in terms of these culture wars around bodily autonomy and things? I think it's an interesting question to ask somebody who has that little bit of distance, but also a connection. Yeah, well, it's actually really interesting because when I was, um, oh God, I can't remember how old I was. I must have been in, in uni doing my undergrad, but I had a, a friend of mine who actually um, decided to get an abortion and I had to drive her to her appointment and everything. Um, and there was the worry in my friend that she would turn up and there would be the you know crowd of people there to mm. yell at her and protest against her. Um, and she was really worried and we had brought like a big hoodie so she could throw it over herself so no one would be able to see her. We had like made all these preparations, but it was a private property. So they were able to keep people from standing there, Mm -hmm. which was really good for her. Um, so I've got kind of a weird relationship with this as somebody who, I mean, I haven't personally, um, but having been quite close to the personal experience of, of needing to engage with it, um, Mm. And of course, I this was all done in um, the part of Florida that thinks it's southern Georgia, which is you know a very important kind of location to to place this in. That maybe people mm. in you know some places in the U.S. might not feel it as strongly as other places do. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, one of the things that I find really interesting looking at this, uh, particularly that one kind of they they this article has very fancy looking you know kind of breakdowns of the demographics and stuff yeah. for yes. easy to to look at. Um, and I know that it's only semi related to uh, what they're talking about, but this this category of the unaffiliated, I I mm. kind of want to explore a little bit more because I don't know what they mean by that. 
Um, I don't know. I know that later they have a thing kind of breakdown of atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. But mm. I don't know where any of the other religions fall on this. I don't know what the survey looked like, because that's always something really important right. to keep in mind when it mm-hmm. comes to the way that people are responding. Particularly, I think about, um, you know, my family is a bit of, of a weird um, case study, which is why I always like them, where uh, my mother would grew up Catholic, probably still is in a lot of her belief beliefs, but doesn't belong to the Catholic Church. So Mm. what would she answer? Mm, Would mm. she answer just general Christian? Would she answer Catholic? Or would she just go ahead and say, well, nothing in particular, because that's easier than Mm, trying mm. to negotiate her own Christian um, identity? Because if you can only pick one, or if they're that clearly laid out, are you Protestant? Are you Catholic? Are you white evangelical? You know, Mm. what do you click if you either don't care Um, I know people who are very floaty Christians, they kind of go to whatever church they like that's in their area rather than Mm. what that specific denomination is. Um, uh, I also know that there's lots of Catholics that determine themselves as Catholics, but not necessarily belonging to the Catholic church. And they tie that identity in with other religious groups. So Catholic Buddhists. Um, I've also heard Mm. atheistic Catholic. So, Mm. you know, how how does that breakdown happen? Because I think, you know, it's just interesting to, I think this kind of is a demonstration of why getting a really closer look at surveys can sometimes be really important. Mm. And also that actually that kind of, uh, to put that alongside the kind of deeper qualitative work where you follow a few people and and really go deep into some of those stories um, is is kind of interesting as well. I mean, from what you're saying, it's kind of, it brings to mind the fact that there is actually a difference between having kind of a self, a sense of your own identity in terms of a particular religious grouping. And then would you claim that religious grouping in a, in a, in a sense that feels political and the more uh, that uh, religious stances of different kinds seem to be tied to political uh, stances the more problematic that can feel sometimes for people um, and you know one of the first things they say about this is is, is you know the the, the connection between a uh, different religious identities and democrat and republican uh, uh, kind of leanings or, or affiliations so that the um, and, and I think that there is there's a connection to this one identity with this one issue that it's really interesting to me that of all the possible issues that could be of importance to someone who considered themselves to be Christian, um, that uh, abortion is 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 the one of the moment. Whereas at other times. Uh, and in other jurisdictions, people with theoretically the same viewpoints and theoretically the same beliefs um, may have felt that to be much less important than than other issues, and and how it is that in the states that it is the one issue you have to have an opinion on, right? It's it's uh, that gun ownership, like you've got to. <laughs> but but I think that you know specifically uh, in terms of religious identity and and your status uh, and your opinion of abortion, uh, there's a very clear link there. Um, like it, it doesn't seem culturally. Uh, even possible to not have uh, t- to have a religious identity and not have a stance on 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 uh, on abortion in the states. Um, you've kind of got to know one one way or the other, haven't you? Um, um, and I wonder if there are people who are kind of a bit like, eh, I'm not sure. Yeah, like, there is oh, some I of that. that happens. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'd say I mean there are cases of that. There are some public mm-hmm. figures who say privately, I believe I am pro-life, but that's my religious opinion, and I separate secular law from that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which which is what would make sense uh, to many people. I think I don't you know not necessarily make sense logically, but I think that uh, it's that kind of attitude is much more common in European contexts. Uh, in my experience, that European and UK context, that people can have very strong beliefs, but that there is that much stronger separation between that and the belief that the, the state should follow that same uh, that same stance. Um, you know, that's uh, an interesting thing. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm sure that the, the debate will run and run. Um, 
I guess this does allow us to bring us to, although it's a very different issue, I'm, I'm kind of keen at this point to bring in Vivian's piece, because I think this has the same connection between what's your religious identity and then what's your relationship to the wider culture and how you're seen and perceived by the wider culture, and what your relationship to those things are. So um, Vivian, you found us a, a, a very last minute, you found us a very cute <laughs> article to look at. <laughs> I did. I went to some of my tried and true places to look at that um, would get me away from talking about the coronavirus, which um, so I went to the Wild Hunt, which is a pagan news um, Mm. website. And this one is from January. So um, which is about uh, a whole lot of outrage that happened over a particular book review that was published in the Independent um, and the book review, I, I think it's semi-fair to say that it took a somewhat pejorative uh, view of the pagan, um, particularly witchcraft um, community. Uh, mm-hmm. There's even a section in there in her, her review, um, I believe it was a her uh, review, which stated um, that, you know, she kind of just assumed that all you know witches would shun science because of you know their reliance on on these kinds of things which is of mm-hmm. course very inaccurate to how a lot of the the community sees themselves and so there was quite a, a large reaction against this um particularly kind of saying that if this exact same book review was published on say christianity mm. or islam or judaism then you know there wouldn't it wouldn't have been probably published (laughs) Um, and the outcry would definitely have been listened to that perhaps it's because of the community itself that it's being kind of shoved under the rug, um, Mm. which is something that's interesting. Uh, But what I found most interesting, particularly as a scholar, was uh, due to the outpouring of complaints that was coming into the Independent, they started sending out this automatic message to anybody complaining about that article. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's quite lengthy, So, but I only want to read this one section of it, which uh, I think is really interesting to think about as a scholar, Um, where they say, right, okay. Uh, I acknowledge that many disagree strongly with the journalist's account of experience of putting the book's recommendations into practice. I have, of course, noted the explanations you have provided as to why the reporter has misunderstood, yada, yada, yada. And then they say, however, you will not be in a position to dispute the writer's own personal experiences or the impression which she was left with during the week. Mm. Um, and I find this a really interesting comment, particularly when it comes to participant observation and the types of research that we do as scholars and the, this, uh, you can kind of bring it into that emic, etic, insider, mm-hmm. outsider debate of if this is what I've experienced as a scholar, how much am I allowed to say it even if the community would disagree? Mm-hmm. Um, how much am I able to say well, this is my experience. And because I'm a scholar, I'm able to communicate that properly and get this published and have lots of people read it. And you can't really say anything because this is my experience as a researcher. Um, I think it opens up a lot of those kinds of conversations. Uh, And I don't know if anyone has had that kind of experience of fighting with the community because most of my fights have been for my community. So Mm -hmm. I haven't had that, but then it makes me wonder that if I did experience something that maybe I, I wasn't quite as favorable towards with the community that I was studying, how would I respond to that? Or would I just ignore it when it comes to the reporting of it? And if I do ignore it, is that proper research? Yeah. I, I yeah. I mean, I'm going to slightly hijack this because this is, this is of, of great importance to my work because uh, my participation, my participant observation and my field work was on a, a community of practice. It was a, a community that that, that 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 has a practice that they do on a virtually daily basis, most of them, um, which, you know, different forms of yoga. And there are, you know, part of my thesis was, was examining the diversity of possible practices that can uh, fall under that umbrella. And as a result, what it, what it meant was, is that my field work involved um, exploring a number of those practices. Now, there were two things involved in that. On the one hand, you know, I really got into the idea of, of not just position out the positionality of the, the researcher, but the, the, the previous embodied experience of the researcher. Because in dance studies and movement studies, uh, you often have the idea of the expert mover, um, that 
in the course of learning a practice, whether it's a kind of a movement practice or a sensory practice, over many, many years, uh, a, a human be- that changes a human being's ability to comprehend what it is they're doing and what it is they're seeing when they see other people do the same movements. So there's this idea of expert movers and that dancers, for example, are expert movers and they know things about the human body and the way the human body moves and feels that non-dancers uh, can't appreciate by just doing something once, which is you know exactly what we're talking about here. You know, dropping in for a week. And I was saying, well, it's interesting if you apply that to something like uh, yoga, which is a practice that that builds up over years and decades. So I had uh, a decade or more of experience with the practice, but it was of particular forms of practice. So through the fieldwork itself, I was constantly having to interrogate. Um, what not just what uh, my participant, my you know my other participants, the participants in research were feeling and experiencing, but what I was experiencing was that down to any insight that I had because I had this embodied experience. Was it uh, affected by my previous experiences and my own preferences? You know, I ended up doing styles of yoga that normally I wouldn't go anywhere near because I don't like them and I don't enjoy them. You know, and how did that affect? how how I was in the space um and there are no kind of easy answers um but I'm really fond of just before I we bring it back to this I'm really fond of there's a piece by Richard Carp on this about uh, academic bodies and the ep- academic bodies are disciplined in specific ways um and that, you know, an academic body that is used to sitting still for long periods of time it, without a lot of natural light and uh, with a lot of computer screens, um, you know, then goes into the field with, you know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of people uh, in a particular environment and attempts to understand what they're doing. And I think we have a similar sense here, right, of a, of a journalist who doesn't obviously doesn't normally do this kind of thing saying well I've tried these practices for a week and it's obviously nonsense um you know it's kind of interesting in terms of what weight we give to those different uh perspectives I guess does that make sense yeah Yeah. so but the other thing I think is interesting here and it'll be interesting to hear you speak to more about is this sensitivity of pagan communities to how the wider world perceives them yeah, I think that's um I think it's definitely a community that is very aware of how the the other to kind of put it in a much more blunt format mm. um how the other views them. Um and this might be due to a lot of different factors both historical as well as media centered. Mm. Um even just looking at a lot of popular culture uh, things like the Sabrina the Teenage Witch, which does a yeah. very poor job, I think, of really exploring these conversations. Um, and as entertaining as some of these pop culture elements might be, understanding the damage that it might be doing to a community group. Um, so I, I think they're very aware of it. And because of mm. that, I think they're very ready to respond in ways like this, which I don't mm. think every community would be prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that particularly, um, especially because it was, it was a book review, the article, which I don't know how many, you know, say evangelical white Christians to think about our mm-hmm. other article are mm-hmm. reading book reviews on evangelical Christianity while, you know, witches might be spending a lot more time in those kinds of spaces. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So They're there's not, something really yeah. interesting about the context of the community itself, mm. uh, in understanding both their reaction as well as, you know, their understanding of their place within, Mm, mm. you know, this context. Yeah, if you've got on the one hand, kind of evangelical Christians are attempting, essentially, not just attempting, but actually succeeding in influencing the actual Supreme Court of a nation compared to, you know, how have we been portrayed in this one book review in, you know, in the back pages of The Independent? it's it's a very different it's not just very different concerns it's a very different level of concern isn't it in in many ways i i can't see many uh many pagan groups attempting to get people onto the uh supreme court really <laughs> i'm it's, sure they'd like to try <laughs> it's interesting yeah. to imagine 150 years from now you know if the united states still exists mm. 
will paganism have flourished in, in its various forms into a major religious organization? Because right now, I, we're talking about a few million people who may identify as pagan or engage in some of the practices. They haven't quite reached, I hate to use the phrase media saturation because it's problematic, but mm. I think as long as people in the United States assume religion as default must look like Christianity, it will be difficult to get into the mindset of a completely different practice-based religion like paganism. And you know, mm. again, paganism mm. isn't just one thing. There are many different forms of it. Absolutely. Yes, very much so. And uh, that is as big a, an issue as, as anything else, having kind of spent some time in these spaces. Um, getting pagans to agree uh, would be an interesting one. I know that there's, I'm sure this is used of other pagan groups as well, but I, I know that most Druid groups, for example, have have the running joke that if you ask three Druids what Druidry is, they, you'll get four different answers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do think that to, there is a certain amount of that that does exist, though, in these mm. quote unquote world religions that everyone kind of relies on. You know, I mm. I remember having a conversation with my father about uh, the Trinity is something that I've never quite been able to wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. And I was having a conversation with him about it. And he made some comment about the Holy Ghost and his wife interrupted and said, you don't believe in that. Which is obviously, therefore, two people who are ascribed to the same exact branch of Christianity, not even just saying Christianity in general, that are having a disagreement on a very core aspect of their own belief. But I think it's a lot easier for people to say Christianity, Jesus, cool, we get it, and not Mm -hmm. push that further of saying, well, what does it mean to Mm -hmm. you? What does it Mm -hmm. mean to be Christian? Which I think when you ask a pagan or a druid uh, to, or you know, as mm. a more specific kind of thing of mm. what does it mean to be druid? That's what they're answering. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. I'm. I'm also aware that his, like, historically speaking, um, there's a a, a guy in who is uh, who's actually headed the the Anglesey Druid Order, and he talks about his mother, his grandmother. Um, uh, you know, that if you're if you're looking kind of uh, a generation or two generations ago, he's saying oh, nobody would say they were pagan, but they would all leave milk out for the pixies. And, you know, they would do all these things that now we would claim as kind of pagan practice. But it's just what you did. But they're good Christian women, you know. And, and I, I mean, I know that um, if I look at my my grandparents kind of growing up and, and, and the things that happened then in in theory as part of Christian practice were actually, you know, they were quite at the, at the, they were at the very least folkloric in uh, in form, um, you know, kind of like specific walks up to specific hills on specific days of the year and and things like that, which certainly weren't sanctified by christian worship but would always happen on on easter sunday or on whitson or or whatever it might be you know so these as we know the closer you look beneath the survey into actual practice and belief the the fuzzier the picture gets right (laughs) you know and the article uh that that vivian shared it, it was quite interesting to read because Last summer, I taught a course on new religious movements in the United States. And the course was a little Mm -hmm. bit of a hodgepodge because I was talking about movements that started here, but also movements that were introduced to the U.S. So, you know, what Mm -hmm. new is could be pitched in many ways. But we talked about witchcraft, uh, modern Mm -hmm. witchcraft as part of it. And um, because I wanted to bring in some guest speakers, I reached out to a neighboring college, which actually just hired a pagan chaplain. Uh, And that was, Mm -hmm. you know, a contentious thing, hiring that, that position. And she came and she brought artifacts or objects from her rituals and she talked about it. And it was, I think it really helped my students to, you know, to think about it tangibly and what, what this looks like as an actual religion. And mm. it's not this, some creepy, it's just, it's just something we do. We don't need to be afraid of it. It's, but it's a different, it's a different group's practice. But mm. I still mm. think there's questions about what gets taken seriously as religion or not by scholars. And I think it's changing. I think there's a lot more openness to studying new movements, but witchcraft's always been kind of on the edge of what's acceptable, what isn't partly because of the connotation. And I've noticed also in some of the studies of witchcraft, at least by, by journalists, there tends to be a sort of gotcha tone, you know, studying Gerald Gardner Mm -hmm. and other British people who contributed to modern paganism and saying, 
oh, you know, they made made all this up, you know, and, and there are, yes, legitimate scholarly questions about where Gerald Gardner was getting his sources from. But then there's the question of, does this not have value for the tradition people are inventing, regardless of where it comes from? I mean, look at the contested origins of the Gospels and all the ones that didn't make the final cut. So I think a lot of this or is the just... Mormons. Exactly. <laughs> or the think, Mormons, for that matter. Which is, which, is a big, which is still contested in the United States by some people. Yeah. And so what I'm getting at yeah. is like, a lot of this comes down to sort of your first cause, your premises. Are you willing to think through them? Mm. A lot of people aren't taught to think that way. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It's just they haven't been asked to question what do you assume is religion. Yeah. Well, as someone who studies popular culture, I highly agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you're speaking. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, so to speak, right here. Um, I think. I think that is. It is. It is a little bit more acceptable uh, to to study this stuff uh, uh, in the UK, and 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 I think we're moving beyond a sense of kind of even moving beyond the sense of different religions into you know what are the commonalities, what are the common kind of. Uh, threads here that run through things um, and uh, to that end that actually uh, brings me really neatly to the kind of two pieces I wanted to look at because there's um I, there's a piece in there was a piece in the in the Guardian this week about uh, an Oxford dean uh, being accused of failing to report child sexual assault now uh, in and of itself I think the story the story is is of not necessarily massive importance um, but it, it, it is part of a much wider issue that we know about in terms of historical abuse within, uh, not exclusively, but within Christian uh, institutions, amongst other religious institutions, um, and um, that historical abuse starting to kind of uh, make moves towards justice and towards institutional reform in ways that it hasn't been able to in the past. Um, and that is an issue, has been, uh, uh, you know, an issue particularly within the Catholic Church, but also now within, you know, within other Christian organisations. But what a lot of people don't may not realise is that the same um, moves and the same threads are playing out as we speak within yoga communities. So people may or uh, may not, you know, we can argue for, for long periods of time as to whether yoga is inherently religious or not, but there are yoga institutions uh, that uh, have the same patterns of uh, abuse, interpersonal abuse, specifically interpersonal sexual abuse, um, uh, the abuse of vulnerable people, vulnerable students rather than vulnerable congregants, um, and the same institutional patterns of denial and cover-up and failure to safeguard and just failure to believe that is, this is even possible, you know, and, and very, very similar debates about uh, can you separate the ideal of uh, the, the the person at the front of the congregation or the front of the of the class or the front of the ashram who is saying all these things about ethical uh, ethical standards and so on and so forth and how to live a good life and if you if you pray right or you do the right yoga practices you will become a better person and then the discovery that uh, they themselves are inherently kind of corrupted in some way, and how do you reconcile that if you believe that the practices or the prayer or the or whatever it might be allows you to live a better life? Um, and and it is fascinating how similar uh, the stories play out in different kind of religious and spiritual groups. Um, I mean, we are at the point now where, to my knowledge, there is no major, there isn't a single major prominent yoga lineage or school that has not had a significant abuse scandal in the last 10 years, basically. We are now at that point. The most recent being um, in uh, Kundalini yoga community is coming to terms with historical um, historical abuse and uh, the Shivananda yoga community as well. So, and yet most people have no idea that's going on. Mm. You know, this, this article hits home for me, you know, I was raised Catholic and, you know, earlier Vivian was mm. talking about cultural, <laughs> cultural versus practicing Catholics. Well, yes. mm-hmm. one, of, one of the main reasons why I'm alienated from the church is because of, you know, and this is me speaking more as myself, not my scholarly hat, but you know, the difficult, mm. the credibility of, you know, who do we trust? You know, in my, mm-hmm. in the church yeah. I grew up in, 
there was a visiting priest who was accused and was removed, although I had to do some digging recently to try to you know, find out, because we never were told one way or another. But more recently, mm. the head of the church was laicized. And um, because in New York State, there's these lawsuits, a one-year statute of limitations lifted to try to catch these guys who did this to children. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, as part of the data that's being released, another priest from my home church, the, the one who was always so good with kids who used to do the puppet shows for us when we were little, well, it turns out he had mm-hmm. had a claim settled. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. there is a danger. That, I mean, it was so intense in the Catholic Church that I think people think, oh, this is only unique to Catholicism. But just, mm-hmm. just this past mm-hmm. month in the um, American Catholic Studies Journal, uh, the historian Julie Byrne ran an article talking about how we shouldn't assume that this is a uniquely Catholic problem. Just as you're talking about, Theo, these problems of abuse mm-hmm. can happen in any tradition. And that doesn't mean don't mm-hmm. study its particular manifestation in a tradition like Kundalini Yoga, Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. But at the same mm-hmm. time, think... What are the larger structures, the, the abuse of power, the desire for control that can manifest in any organization? Look at the American Boy Scouts. They are going bankrupt because mm-hmm. of all the abuse claims they're settling. Mm-hmm. And I also think, you know, to bring it closer to home, I think it also uh, one of the interesting questions that, 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 that I struggle with is what is our responsibility as, as scholars? when it comes to these kinds of things, because certainly in, in terms of yoga studies, um, you know, there's a, the, I know they regret this now, but the, the book Gurus of Modern Yoga has, has a sentence in its introduction that says, I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says, you know, abuses by gurus are not, are not the uh, primary focus of this book. And you think, why? You know, like when when there are that many accusations, then and that many reports, then this starts to be something that 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 has is at the very least systemic, even if it's not endemic. So therefore, surely it's part of what uh, part of the kinds of patterns that we want to be talking about. Um, and and how do you not talk about those patterns uh, if they are so obvious and so repeated? You know, um, and what's our but it's uncomfortable for us, right? Because as you as you said, Dan, you you start to take a personal position with regards to it. Um, what is you know how does that then touch on my personal ethics about what I feel to be right and wrong, and how does that relate to my positionality as a researcher and as a scholar? Um, I have a two-word response: mandated reporter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I also wonder how much it impacts whatever other research you can do. I mean, can you imagine if you, Theo, were talking to mm-hmm. some young upstart PhD student who wanted to do something on yoga that had absolutely nothing to do with this mm-hmm. and talking about it would be, you know, kind of completely a tangent that had nothing to do with the rest of their research Mm. Do they address it? Do they not address it? Do they address it only to say that they're not going to address it? You know, at Mm. at what point do you negotiate those things? Because I know that was a decision that I had to make uh, Mm. for my community, although my community didn't perpetrate anything, um, but they Mm. were associated with um, violent actions. And Mm. so I still had to address it. But to what extent did I address it? Um, But you have to kind of make those negotiations within your own research. Hmm. Well, I, th- I think you I think you make those negotiations specifically with regards to what you're talking about, which is how, you know, the, there's, a, you know, how much of an impact has it had? Um, and there's growing evidence. I think now we are starting to study it that that the, the these are not that the, these are not tangential to the history of modern yoga, that at least within yoga, um, that these uh, these acts uh, have fundamentally altered uh, the, the the trajectory of modern yoga in various specific ways, and that therefore it's actually very difficult increasingly to talk about yoga without talking about them. Um, there's even uh, uh, there's even a possibility, it's a hypothesis uh, that the history of touch in yoga so when yoga teachers will, will will touch students to adjust them and move them and that didn't happen in pre in the pre-modern era um, and that touch starts to happen in very specific places at very specific times and the, and the teachers that were involved in the yoga movements where touch started to come in 
were known to be abusive in different ways, not all of them, but many of them. So at that point, you have to kind of offer the hypothesis that abuse is in, is part of the history of adjustment itself, of touch itself within yoga. You know, whereas I think in your case, it's it's different because it's much easier to say, well, these communities have a reputation for violence, but actually, in reality, that's not what's playing out here. Yeah, no, I mean, I think my community is a slightly different um, mm. example case. Uh, I was just more kind of saying that I, I definitely had to make that, and that wasn't even as extreme mm. as some of these other cases. And so I can't imagine if I was, say, for example, studying Catholicism at the moment, mm. how much mm. do I devote my research to talking about child abuse scandals, even if my mm. research has nothing not to do that. with child abuse scandals? Yeah, yeah. Well, my re- my research has nothing to do with guru abuse, but and yet it's you know ninety percent of what I end up talking about. I made that specific decision not to go down that road, and here I am. Um. Uh. Yeah, I think it's it, it's tricky, and I'm aware uh, partly because uh, I've put a, an abstract in for it. Uh, but there is a conference in Chester that I would like to kind of big up a little bit coming up in September um, on uh, what's, I think they're calling it spiritual abuse. Um, So I think that's going to be a really interesting conference, specifically talking about these issues cross-denominationally. And I'm I'm hoping, I've proposed a panel on yoga, um, and I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to do in the hope that we are all allowed to travel by (laughs) September. I hope so. Um, (laughs) Let us hope. <laughs> Which kind of, you know, time is is slightly getting on as ever. And I guess um, we, we we should at least in passing talk about um, the coronavirus uh, and the impact it's having on, 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 on all sorts, not just of religious communities, but the entire academic community um, kind of as we speak, really. Um, yes, so, I am. I am currently yeah. in the mode of being incredibly worried about students. Yes, um, on mm. on many different levels. Uh, for one, we had strikes here in the UK um, mm. that took up quite a lot of this term, and then at at Durham, we just announced that uh, the final week of term, which was the only week that they really had this term for lectures. Um, Mm. is now being cancelled. However, it currently stands that the exam is still in place. So there's obviously lots of concerns going on at the moment of of just from an academic standpoint. Um, I also have concerns as an international student um, when I was here of the international students and Mm. Mm. um, with travel restrictions internationally, already in place for a lot of countries mm-hmm. and now you're closing down sections of the university where do international students go yeah um yeah. yes are they stuck do they have a home Tricky. are they going to have a place at the uni um mm-hmm. these kinds of mm-hmm. questions are really important to be asking and making sure that we're addressing in order to make sure that no one falls mm-hmm. through the cracks and mm-hmm. is uh left abandoned by essentially everyone mm-hmm. um also thinking about students, a lot of unis are putting their stuff available online, but many students don't have access to the internet at their homes. Mm, mm, what do we do mm. for those students? And I have been hearing that essentially the library will still be open, but that is defeating the purpose of safeguarding yeah, your sure. students. And the librarians. This. And yes. the librarians, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess the numbers will be smaller, but you're still putting, if your concern is students being putting students at risk of illness, this isn't really helping the situation. Mm. Um, so I think that as things go forward, um, anybody who is involved in these kinds of decisions, or at least has a hand in talking to your students even a little bit, um, try to make sure that your students have a home that they are comfortable going home to, because some people do have a home that they don't feel comfortable going home to. Um, mm. And mm. make sure that they have somewhere that they do feel comfortable going to in this time. Mm. how about you dan how's it over there well it's been quite interesting you know it was one conference after another was getting canceled this week and yesterday my university Mm. just announced that um 
you know, we're moving all classes online for the rest of the semester. Now, some schools are just doing it for a month and then they'll reevaluate on April 15th, right around, right around when taxes are due, really. Um, <laughs> but my school is saying to the end of the semester, and like many other colleges, they're evacuating the dorms, although exceptions are made because they realize not everyone can leave. Now, that's particularly fraught in the United States because of the so-called Muslim ban, which recently was mm. expanded to include even more countries. So that if some of these students go home, back to their home countries, they might not be able to come back to finish their degree ever, mm-hmm. or at least as long as Trump is, as long as President Trump is still in power. And this remains on the books. So I'm thinking about mm-hmm. that. Students who can't leave because they have nowhere else to go. Also stateless persons, particularly the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Other things that come to mind. Also, with the sudden, this isn't religious per se, but the sudden move to online teaching and everyone... Well, not everyone in the United States, but a significant majority of the of people want to use this app called Zoom for business conferencing to teach. Yeah, and I it's it is a pretty good app. I just hope that they have the server space to accommodate you know an entire country's mm-hmm. worth of classes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. everyone's saying go online, go online, but I'm waiting for. Again, I'm not an expert on IT, but I'm waiting for there to be connectivity trouble because of so many people trying to use these networks. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm 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 a, a geek by marriage. Uh, my other half is currently quietly smug about the fact that he works from home with large boxes of electronic equipment um, elsewhere in the world, and so far it hasn't affected his job in any way, shape, or form. But I think it's a, you know, it's a, one of the the joys of having a fairly antisocial. Um, profession to begin with <laughs> he's, he's he's fine yeah. I'm, and now the I'm whole sure world let... the whole world's invading <laughs> you know yeah yeah he's i think uh, yeah with once we get an influx of users i think that might be a different thing um but you know also a lot of the people that i'm working with are either are, are differently vulnerable so uh, if you're talking about kind of yoga teachers and so on and and and, and various kinds of countercultural um almost below the radar professions that this is a, a lot of therapists, a lot of, a lot of uh, instructors of different kinds They we are all self-employed. Um, so there is no, there's no safety net. Um, so for example, and it's very difficult to know what the good, right thing to do. So, for example, I'm there's a training I'm going on this weekend, which involve you know, which has taken over a year to plan. That involves people coming from all over the country. The person doing the training is coming from overseas, and you know, do we cancel it? Do we not cancel it? I, you know, the, the the people running it probably can't afford to cancel it because you know they're not they're not making masses of money. So unless the government actually uh, puts you know, puts things in place that make it seem culturally acceptable to stop doing things, then it, it can be quite difficult for self-employed people to say, well, you know, I'm going to take an ethical stance um, when, you know, you could lose not just a week's work or a month's work, but actually you could lose clients and, and, and opportunities forever. And I have, you know, friends who are musicians and things who, you know, in terms of festivals and those kinds of things, oh, sure, where, yeah. like they're insured for all kinds of bad weather and God knows what else, meteor strikes and God knows what, but they are not, uh, they're not, they're not insured for the government deciding you can't have gatherings of more than a thousand people. At the same time, more and more of the, the work that a lot of yoga teachers in particular do, uh, as in many places in the world, is therapeutic work. So uh, a lot of the people that, that uh, the people I work are coming into contact with are immune compromised in different ways. Um, uh, some of the people I work with on a weekly basis are immune compromised in different ways. Um, I've had at least one student email and say who's nearly, you know, nearly 80 and said, um, I'm going to stay home. I work with uh, I was at a center uh, respite center for profoundly disabled children last night. You know what I'm taking from one of those places to the next is is uh, particularly because the work that I do is hands on um, is somewhat worrying. Um, and and who knows? And and I guess uh, and it might be a slightly tangential link, but I'm I'm struck by the biggest advice of all being about washing your hands and yes. of how traditional that is in many religious contexts. This idea that that what keeps you safe is washing your hands. And I and I know that a friend of mine who you know whose whose mother kind of grew up uh, um, in 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 Ireland and fairly kind of working class community said, you know, when we were growing up, our our health service was washing your hands. 
Nick. Yes. Know, that's that's the thing you do and, and of how how prevalent uh, that hand washing is in different religious cultures and cultural contexts. Um, and I, 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 I guess would, it's a reminder of that. I would say also, and I realize we're well past time, but I'm also thinking about hospital mm. chaplains and medical ethicists who, at least in the United yeah. States, there are more of these medical ethic consultants who hospitals keep on staff. And mm. I'm thinking about, you know, my grandmother, this is, you know, 70 years ago, mm. but when her mother was dying and, you know, who gets the oxygen tent back when they had, you know, they put doesn't. sort of a yeah. plastic tent over yeah. you, right. Who gets it and who doesn't. And, mm. you know, mm. of course we have much more technology today. People don't usually use oxygen tents anymore, but you know, if suddenly we get millions of patients and we don't have mm. the equipment, mm. then deciding and and comforting mm. that's they're going to have really we, tough yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it gets tricky. Okay, well, I, I, I'm sure we can keep going kind of, you know, for all day, really. But um, I think David would be sad if we did that. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think we can uh, bring it to a close, hoping everyone stays safe, uh, including you guys. Um, and, um, yeah, let's hope that two months from now it's all over and it'll be, it'll feel like, a, you know, a storm in a teacup, really. Oh, we've got to throw a huge party. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Everyone can touch their faces. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Yes. Are you finding that? I'm finding my my husband and I are like, you're touching your face. (laughs) That's the one thing. Like, oh, it's so annoying. Anyway, uh, so, yeah, I just want to thank you both for joining me today. Uh, uh, You know, especially kind of fairly last minute gathering this together. uh, with one thing or another and I hope our listeners enjoyed the episode I think I hope we uh, gave people a few things to be thoughtful about and discourse will be back in a month or so regardless even if we're all stuck at home we can still record podcasts that's, that's the good news <laughs> <laughs> so thank you thank you Dan and thank you Vivian thank you take care all right The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by founders and editors-in-chief Chris Cotter and David Robertson, and managing editor Thomas J. Coleman III. Our features are edited by Marek Sullivan and Rebecca Barrett-Fox, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bock. Podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, with audio editing by Gregory Schneider and Samuel Ward. Social media managed by Ray Radford, sales and marketing by Sammy Bishop, and video editing by Jonathan Tuckett. Don't forget you can support the project by using our amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. <laughs>